And thank you all for joining us today. Um, indeed, uh, the end of a golden age is the question before the House. Uh, we have seen uh, the better part of uh, 40 years of falling interest rates, falling inflation, uh, <clears throat> the elevation of capital markets uh, from stocks to bonds to housing to art uh, and even new confections such as NFTs, uh, gosh, only knows what those really are at the end of the day, alternative currencies and the like. So we've had a period, um, a remarkable period that's lasted indeed a couple of generations uh, that uh, uh, seems perhaps to coming to an end. And that is the question, is it? Or, or, or is this um, an episode uh, along uh, a long trail that we've had indeed since the, the early 1980s. The conversation today, uh, we'd like to focus on, on, on really four things to, to, to convey to you. The first is that inflation, uh, the inflation of the last year or so remains firmly uh, in place. Um, that's number one. Number two, uh, the shocks that we've seen to the economy let's say over the last year between energy prices, a land war exacerbated by a land war and the, the uh, inflation problem, um, some of it resulting from the, uh, the pandemic, um, all have, these are shocks that uh, raise the risk uh, of a recession in the economy. Third thing is, is that the bond market seems to be pricing this. It seems to be grabbing hold of this reality. Whereas the stock market, even though it's down a thousand points today, when you look at expectations uh, uh, with the stock market around the earnings and things like that, perhaps less so. There's less of a, a reflection of that reality. And then finally, what do you do with this? How do we? How should we think about this in the context of investing? And and what should we expect going forward? So to that end, let me let me get into it and and. Uh, Sort of lay out as we see it. So the the first thing that would be remiss in in, in, in not recognizing sort of the difficult environment that this year uh, has presented. Last year was building um, the strong returns right across the board. Last year really built on strong returns uh, from the snapback in 2020. Uh, this year the returns are kind of a mirror image of what we saw last year and the year before. Uh, where we're seeing um, large, you know, companies both large and small, international and domestic down. The thing that's really uh, noteworthy is that the fixed income markets are now uh, uh, retreating, and we're we're seeing drawdowns in the fixed income markets. Quite frankly, you'd have to go back uh, to the early 1970s to see. Um, and indeed, you know, uh, the, the the drawdown that we've seen so far this year, today notwithstanding. Uh, is the second uh, largest drawdown in the corporate and government bond markets since 1973 and 1974. In the municipal market, we only have data going back to the early 1990s. And the drawdown here, again, we've seen in the municipal market, and that is when I say drawdown, the sort of the fall in prices from peak to trough, uh, that's the lar largest uh, that we have on the data that we, we, we've been able to get. So this, this is a tough environment this year. Pretty much stocks and bonds are down. So bonds are not offering you the protection uh, that they have traditionally given you where you know, if stocks go down, bonds tend to go up and it's the ballast in the portfolio. That, that really hasn't uh, happened this year, as you can see, 
with uh, returns right across the fixed income landscape. Indeed, in order to get a positive return in the bond market this year, one would have to take their money to China. Uh, and and even, even at that, uh, you know, getting a return on your capital in China is one thing, perhaps getting your money back might be another thing altogether. So while the returns have been positive, uh, I'm not sure that one could have a great deal of confidence in those returns. Another way to look at this, the drawdown that we've seen this year, and this data goes back uh, a little over 20 years, uh, and we only have uh, five months uh, uh, behind us at this juncture, but the drawdown that we've seen uh, in the start of the year is really uh, only second to what we, uh, of the great financial crisis of 2008. So the mean return, the monthly return then was about three point, negative 3.8%. Right now, we're running at a negative 2.6% average ret monthly return. So pretty weak start to the year. Now, what's driving all of this? How, how did we get to such a remarkable uh, reversal of fortune, if we will? Isn't the economy growing? Yes, uh, it's growing at a fairly good clip, actually. Um, aren't consumers in pretty good shape? Indeed, they are. And labor markets really have, um, there have been fewer points in our history where labor markets have been tighter than where they are right now, which is forcing uh, earnings to um, income to go up. Well, the issue, the problem that we're facing is here, it's inflation. Um, and regardless of how you look at inflation, it's significantly above where um, our policymakers want it. Our policymakers want inflation to be, you know, firmly right around 2%. Indeed, for the most part, that's kind of where inflation has been. And it's trended a little bit above, a little bit below over the last uh, 10 years or so. But um, starting about a year and a half ago, inflation in the United States really started to lift and it lifted at a very good, pay, uh, very fast pace. So you can see it's gone straight up. And even if you flatter the data, by um, trying to smooth it out by looking at a 12 month moving average, a six month moving average. It's all confirming the same obvious point that prices are broadly rising. And that's a problem if you're a central banker. It's also a problem if you're a politician because there's nothing like an inflation uh, that uh, uh, causes the conditions in which governments fall. The Turks right now, uh, it was just reported this morning, are seeing inflation near 70%. Uh, that, is, that is very problematic uh, for the political class. This, uh, this inflation that's rising is not only an American problem, but it's also really a global problem. Um, you know, our, our, our uh, counterparts in Europe and in the UK um, um, are all seeing inflation rise. And indeed, uh, this morning it was announced that uh, from the Bank of England that uh, they expect uh, inflation to hit 10% or more by the fourth quarter of this year. But you know, Europe where it was generally thought there would be no inflation pretty much forever because they had, and they indeed had negative nominal interest rates, that has uh, reversed itself pretty quickly, just as it has in the United States. And inflation has quickly become a problem there as well. What's driving this inflation? Well, from our vantage point, there's two things that are going on. <clears throat> the supply chain problems, which we all heard about, but it's really easy to overlook um, just how important this is, number one, and number two, how, how um, um, tied up these chains are um, when you look at sort of the um, um, sort of high level data. When you get into it a bit further, what you find 
is that, and, and what we're looking at here is this is a, an amalgamation of different um, uh, different measures of supply chains uh, globally, and it, and it standardizes it in terms of z-scores. That, in other words, um, deviations away from their mean. And you know, most of the time, uh, when you look at numbers like this, you spend most of your time between you know plus one and zero one off the mean. Um, Right now, we're somewhere between three and a half to four standard deviations off the mean. Now, a lot of these, the and so this this represents, you know, containers being in the wrong place, having problems getting a ship from the the the, the west coast of uh, the east coast of China to the west coast of the United States or to the east coast of the United States, shipping freights, having to rerun um, air freight lines around uh, the Ukraine and Russia because of the conflict, because there's a war there. Um, these are all things that are, are there could be measured and, and evaluated. And what we see right now is while there's been some improvement, they are still very badly dislocated. And from what we're hearing out of different sectors, these supply chain disruptions could, in some cases, especially in the chip area, which is so important to like cars and any of the electronic equipment that we now use, those dislocations could run well into 2024. Um, so the companion uh, to these problems that we're having with the supply chain is problems with the labor market. Uh, as a result of, uh, of COVID, and some would argue that as a result of a lot of the, uh, the stimulus, the fiscal stimulus that was provided, to get to hold us over uh, until the uh, pandemic um, uh, started to abate, a lot of folks dropped out of the labor market. So people uh, essentially put their job, uh, their engagement with the job market on hold. And as a result, that has created a shortage of labor. And this is very easily seen here in the United States when you look at the number of jobs looking for uh, and relate that to the number of unemployed people. So by our reckoning, there's something on the order of about 2.25 jobs looking for a person to fill them. Um, that creates a shortage of labor. So the labor market is not balanced. Uh, it's not. Uh, uh, it's not self-correcting at this at this juncture, and you're seeing this continuing in, on in the form of rising wages. Indeed, for uh, at the main street level, you see it with uh, restaurants cutting their hours. Um, seen a lot of that, or restaurants closing or you know throwing in the towel because they can't find the workers. This is particularly acute in the services industry. Um, and so at this juncture, while there's been a little bit of improvement, um, it's certainly not enough to, to, to um, ameliorate some of these problems inside the, the, the labor market. Now, this is a growth problem for sure. We continue to see an environment in which, um, even though despite all these problems, growth around the world is expected to uh, uh, continue along this year. Although, and, and this is this is a, a big if, um, if, there is an attempt by raising interest rates to try to sort of arrest some of this growth, hopefully to engineer a slowing uh, of the economy so that um, uh, the price pressures ease and, and it gives sort of a, a time for the economic state of play to reset. But, but certainly what we're seeing is a problem of uh, a lot of demand driven by growth and not enough supply, either created by supply chain disruptions or the lack of labor to create things. 
Now, uh, what's the um, what's the, the 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 shock to the system, right? That, that's producing all those negative returns that we saw at the front of the presentation here. We know what the causes are, right? We just talked about that, but what are the shocks that are actually causing, you know, bond markets to be down 10%, 20%, the, the equity market today to be off 4% uh, and even 12% so far this year. And this is the, the first step and this is the first thing that's happening. Money is repricing, right? So fundamentally the cost of capital uh, money uh, is going up. And you can see here where we started at the beginning of the year where interest rates were. This is both the, uh, this is the shape of money, the price of money through time. You can see that it's gone up tremendously. Short money that, you know, if money for one year cost roughly a quarter of a percent. Um, now, if you go out into the market and try to get a loan for one year, that's if you have perfect credit, you're going to pay north of 2%. That's an enormous uh, lift in only uh, roughly four months and a few days. So this is very disruptive. So this would be one shock. Another shock is that we've seen sort of the, the shape of money start to change a little bit. We've had some briefly inversion of yield curves, which is which, as you recall from prior conversations, uh, when the when when the short um, near-term interest rates are higher than longer-term interest rates, it starts to kill commercial activity uh, because of risk aversion. We've seen a little bit of that this year. Thankfully, it hasn't, uh, it hasn't maintained itself, but that has been another source of angst uh, that investors have had to contend with. This, I think, is a bigger issue, uh, which is uh, the result of, uh, this was already in tow before uh, land war broke out in Ukraine, uh, but it's certainly been exacerbated since as that, that conflict has, uh, has uh, uh, deepened, taken hold in the West's response to Russian aggression. And these are, what we're looking at here is uh, energy prices, crude prices. But what the way that we're looking at this is a bit different. This is a, a percentage different from a longer term average to get to, to sort of dimension the magnitude of the shock. And you can see here that the shock that we've seen so far uh, with this with this uh, this war is on on par with what we saw back with the land war in the Middle East, with the invasion uh, of of Kuwait by the Iraqis in 1990, uh, and some uh, and certainly the oil crisis back in 1973. Um, so these, this shock, and because oil is an input to the economy, even though we are a much more efficient economy, it, it's an important um, uh, feedstock for both um, the American economy, the European economy, and certainly for emerging markets. When you, when you start to put shocks to the, um, uh, the price of money, right, and shocks to energy markets, uh, when you look through history, uh, what you tend to find when one of those, both of those things happen at the same time, you start to, to raise the risk of recession. We had an env environment like this back in 1990 uh, in the run-up to the Gulf War. Uh, we had another uh, run-up to this back in 2000 as the economy expanded and, uh, and interest rates rose and uh, energy prices rose. And then, of course, we saw it again in the run-up to the great financial crisis. And the pattern now is beginning to emerge yet again. Now, does this end in recession or not? We don't know. 
that's the big question before the House. Um, but it certainly does point us to a, a in the direction of the cure being um, a slower rate of growth uh, and whether it can be engineered in a way to avert recession remains to be seen. Now, there are some knock-on effects of this. As I said earlier, you know, Turkey now has, is registering, uh, in which Turkey, which is a, a member of NATO, um, not perhaps the most stable of governments, uh, uh, is seeing inflation because of food and energy now up around 70%. Now, there's a history, a pretty good history, according to the, uh, the UN and uh, the World Bank, that when you have uh, <clears throat> food prices uh, rise, you tend to have more social instability. And the social instability that we see or we proxy is um, uh, terroristic uh, terrorism episodes that result in fatalities uh, as a proxy for social unrest. You can see here that when you see, when you see an increase in food prices, you tend to have an increase in social instability. And that I think is, is starting to some of the knock-on effects that we're, we're seeing from some of this. Looked at another way, and perhaps not as encouragingly, that when you, uh, and on the left hand, uh, 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 there's a lot going on in this graph. So if you uh, 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 bear with me for a moment, um, uh, the point is actually a very good point. So on the left hand, uh, uh, Part of this graph, what we're showing is the percentage of um, farmers um, that are surveyed that think that their um, growing conditions right now for wheat are really good, uh, and you can see uh, that 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 is an inverted uh, uh, axis. So the higher it goes, the fewer of the farmers actually think growing conditions are good. On the right-hand side, it's the price of wheat, winter wheat. And you can see that more and more farmers actually think conditions are poor. In other words, fewer are saying conditions are good. Uh, and that's coinciding with, and as it has in the past, higher prices. And, and if we look at where uh, here in the United States, because of dry weather, um, not only here, but in other growing markets uh, because of uh, environmental impacts and the like, um, the, the winter, the, the wheat conditions for harvest are not very good at all, which is uh, putting another pressure on input prices, in this case, uh, food. Now, at the same time, as for, uh, the shocks that are going on, we're seeing more and more uh, central banks raising interest rates. We just updated this chart the other day. It went from 11 to 15. Uh, now there are even more central banks uh, hiking rates. Uh, the uh, uh, the uh, Rix Bank has uh, started to raise rates. The Bank of England raised yet again. So um, there are, you know, net around the globe, um, there are more central banks hiking interest rates than there are cutting. So we're in a net uh, tightening condition. And then here at home, we, we expect to see more interest rate increases as we transit through the year. Expecting, if, if we take our cue from what the market is expecting, uh, short interest rates will be somewhere between two and a half to two and three quarters percent by the end of the year. Uh, just for reference, as of yesterday, uh, the, the interest rate is uh, closer to about 1% right now. So a fair amount of interest rate increases yet to come. Now with that, in June, it was also announced yesterday that the Fed Reserve is going to start to shrink its balance sheet. That means that all that money that it printed in the 
printed to the tune of about, uh, if memory serves, well, the numbers are right here, about $4 trillion uh, over the last several years to help the economy uh, during the uh, um, period of the pandemic. Well, that's gonna start to roll off now. So when you combine higher price of money with um, less money in the system, you're seeing a tightening of liquidity conditions, which it's hoped that will engineer a slowdown in growth and reduce some of the inflation pressures. So as we saw, I mean, all, with all this in train, one would wonder, okay, we're going to have a slowdown in the, you know, some sort of slowdown in the economy. It's required in order for us to deal with the, the inflation problems. Is the equity market um, picking up on this? And the answer, apart from the machinations and prices, as far as expectations, when you look at actual profits over the next 12 months, there's been remarkably little worry about how these higher energy costs, higher the higher price of money, the higher cost of capital, uh, whether companies can pass on the um, uh, uh, these higher costs onto the end user, you know, their end customer. And the market seems to be saying, absolutely don't worry about it. Um, nothing to see here. These, these costs are temporary at best, and they certainly could be passed on at worst. Um, and you can see it again when looking at that profit margins um, continue to remain elevated. And we think this is probably where the, bis the, the biggest dislocation is in the markets right now. We think that we probably are at peak margins and that there are, there are risks to margins that need to, need to be accounted for, uh, that, the, that the market in general hasn't accounted for yet. And yet, when we look at earnings so far this year, um, market participants have a right to feel pretty good that um, this is all rather temporary. S&P 500 earnings uh, are expected to be up 7% in the first quarter. We're working through those numbers now, right? They're, those numbers are getting re released. It's almost double of what they, what they were expected to be at the beginning of the quarter. Um, so, so it's understandable to, to see this, 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 this skepticism on part of the market right now um, as to whether any of this really will mean anything longer term. It is interesting to know that when you look at companies with most of their uh, revenue inside the United States versus those with most of their revenue outside the United States, companies with revenues outside the United States tend to be producing better returns uh, during the first quarter. I suspect that this is because of the um, uh, energy industry. Energy has, has really taken off uh, uh, to, to no one's surprise. And I think that has pulled along. Um, and most of those companies are doing business outside the United States. And that's had a, a very helpful impact on the both revenue growth and the earnings growth of, of those companies that have more of an international focus. From the equity market perspective, um, this year, you know, we're still looking at, at growth in earnings this year. So as we said earlier, there's been remarkable little impact on the expectations for what will happen. In truth, I think what we're likely to see in the United States, while the market's calling for a 9% uh, growth, I think what we're likely to see is numbers coming in closer to 5 to, to 6%. As we get further into this year, we'll start to see more of this uh, uh, impact. Um, sort of take hold, but it's but it's growth nonetheless, right? Growing a lot less than what it was last year, but still growing, and that's the same narrative that we'll see 
uh, both in developed markets and emerging markets. I think all of those expectations are at risk. Uh, not that they would turn necessarily negative, but certainly for 2022, uh, these numbers will come down from where they're expected to right now. That's probably good news because you see on the right-hand side, uh, uh, that'll help valuations start to um, um, reset themselves. We continue, markets continue to be um, elevated relative to their uh, uh, their 25-year average, um, and in some cases, you know, in international markets, they're, they're, they're slightly below the average, emerging markets a little bit above, um, but we're, we still haven't come back to sort of uh, mean reverted in, in a lot of these markets. So what does this mean? What do we do with all of this? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll remind you all, for those who follow our work, um, Austin and I have been uh, on a number of these uh, where we've talked about, you know, expect a volatile year. Even before we got into uh, uh, the war in, with, uh, with Ukraine, uh, we thought that the, the essentially fixing the problems that we have already in tow, sort of supply lines, labor market shortages, uh, normalization of interest rates, those things alone would cause uh, for some market ructions, and we would get a drawdown between seven to 15%. And early in the year, we got that. We were down about 12 or 13%. Now we're retesting those lows. We thought we would retest those lows. We talked about it in our last uh, outlook. And, and sure enough, we are. Um, we've also talked about inflation not being transitory, that it's going to be um, something much more stubborn, which it seems to be. We've also, as a result of these views, we uh, uh, back in, in uh, February, we went from an underweight in cash to an overweight in cash. We reduced equity exposure. We reduced fixed income exposure. Uh, in reducing the equity exposure, we took down our developed markets, our US, as well as emerging markets. And we furthermore pivoted some of our American exposure from a market cap orientation that has a lot of exposure to the big companies with high expectations that are at risk right now to the average company. And that alone this year has added between two to 400 basis points or, or, or two to four percentage points of incremental uh, return. It's, it's protected downside to the point of two to 4%. Um, we now stand with our recommended work that fully a fifth of the American exposure would be held, is held through um, an equal weighted construct rather than this traditional market weighted, market cap weighted. So I think as we roll forward here, we're going to deal more of this, these drawdowns over the course of the year. And, and we've said that, you know, based on what is already in tow, we should not expect, be surprised by a drawdown now. Um, of, of, of 15 to 20%. That, that's already happened in the uh, NASDAQ market. It could easily happen in this market. Thankfully, we've raised cash, we're overweight cash now, and we've, we're, we're prepared for this. How does this, how does this all work out then? How does, where does the market catch a break? Well, you'd have to go back probably to the early aughts. Uh, and, and this is data that we've been looking at uh, for a bit now. Because if, if, the, if, if the markets are right and earnings continue to grow, well, that's generally, and for the most part, always 
a good thing for equity markets, right? Because equities are simply the present value of future cash flows. Those cash flows most are, are most clearly manifested in earnings. If earnings are growing, that's support for the market. And, in, and indeed, that's correct. And history has shown that. There's been a couple, and there's been a couple of episodes, uh, and the most, the most recent was back in the, the mid-aughts, where coming out of, a, out of uh, an epic uh, uh, technology bubble, the market broke. Um, and you can see where um, uh, you know, the returns were, 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 were terribly negative for a while. Uh, and then uh, the market you know, earnings came down and then earnings recovered and they started to grow very nicely. But yet PE, because the, because the markets weren't rewarding this, the, the, these increased earnings, PE multiples, and in this case, in this, this graph, the brown line is the PE multiples. The blue line um, would be the earnings for the S&P 500. You had S&P earnings growing, but at the same time, multiples contract. So what does that mean? It means that markets were doing nothing. They were marking time. They were moving sideways. So they were up, they were down. You had good years, you had bad years. All the while, the earnings multiples were compressing. And in over the longer term, um, compressed multiples generally represent really good um, opportunities for uh, investors to take advantage of because it take you know it takes you um, uh, fewer years to earn back um, the money that you've invested in the enterprise. Um, so I think there's an environment now that looks somewhat similar to what we were dealing with in the early aughts. Um, you know, will it be the exact same thing? No, never is. But there is certainly precedent for a period of markets sort of churning, moving sideways, while earnings continue to sort of move forward, perhaps in fits and starts, multiples to contract while the market just churns and tries to digest a pivot both in the price of money, margins, and, and policy. So where do, where do we go? With all of this, how do we? What are the takeaways from all of this? I think there there are several, uh, and I think the the this notion first and foremost that inflation being the driver, uh, uh, the inflation driven by tight labor markets, broken supply lines, that remains firmly in place, and there doesn't at this juncture look like there's any relief on the horizon. There has been some improvement, but not relief to the level that uh, we would need to get these things resolved. Second thing is that it's you know we should expect interest rates to rise. The central bankers are telling this, us this. Probably we're hike again 50 basis points in each of the next two meetings, and that'll get us closer to where we need to be. Um, I think an economic slowdown, whether it's intended or not, is the likely cure for this. There's there, we we have a, a saying that um, you know the cure for high prices is high prices, just as the cure for low prices is also low prices. It's there's a reflexivity to markets that 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 the circularity that causes the system to respond to these, uh, these things. And this is probably what's in store for us. I think the fixed income markets that reflect the state of play, I think they reflect the, the problems in the supply chain, uh, the, the markets and the policy pivot now unfolding. The equity markets, not so much. We, we're, we're seeing this in sort of expectations around you know um, what the margins will be, what earnings are going to be, and the like. And there, and as as the equity market players um, um, 
wrestle with this and sort of come to terms with the reality before us, I think we'll start to see, well, it's start to see, we'll see continued uh, volatility that we've had this year. So there'll be more of that at offer. And then finally, the portfolio construction is really critical in getting through environments in transition environments like this. So you've seen us er active earlier in the year. Um, you'll see that continue to be a feature of what we do. You saw, uh, uh, as for those of you who have been with us for, for some time now, that's exactly what we did in March of 2020. We were active in trying to position portfolios both to protect and create some opportunity. We're doing, we've done that back in February. We'll continue to do that. But the important thing in environments like this is to know what you own, why you own it, and understand what the risks of the ownership are. It isn't a, it isn't a clarion call to, to try to time markets. It's really all about portfolio construction, which means you know, um, continuing to own what you own, uh, modulating your exposures where needed when the opportunity presents itself and paying attention to the details, which uh, as I was talking about earlier about some of the risk uh, uh, profile changes that we've made uh, reflects an attempt to do that. So Austin, that's, that's the world as we see it. Is the, is the age, is the, have we seen the end of a golden age? At this point, I'd have to say that uh, um, we are, we are we're going from an, a, an environment of very cheap money, integrated markets around the globe, uh, um, you know, great um, technological advances that created um, all sorts of new industry and new productivity to a world in which we're pivoting toward um, um, more regionalization of supply lines, just in case uh, versus just in time. Um, a price of money now that is becoming um, sort of more normalized, which means higher. And perhaps a labor market that remains um, a bit in transition. So as the labor market ages, people tend to drop out. Uh, they become less sticky to the labor market. So these problems are probably much more durable than they're, they're, um, they're thought of at the moment. So with that, Austin, back over to you. The opinions expressed in this material are as of the date issued and subject to change at any time. The materials discuss general market conditions and trends and should not be construed as investment advice. Any reference to specific securities are for illustrative purposes only and are not intended to be and should not be interpreted as recommendations to purchase or sell such securities. Nothing contained herein is intended to constitute investment, legal, tax, or accounting advice, and viewers should discuss any proposed arrangement or transaction with their investment, legal, or tax advisors. Copyright 2022, Fiduciary Trust Company.